if you've been hanging out with us for the last little while, we've been journeying sort of through Acts by following the lectionary. And you've probably heard me say the lectionary a few times if you're confused. It's just, um, it's basically a way of reading through the Bible in three years, and then it repeats itself. Um, it's been set up for a long time. It makes it easier, easy for us not to have to choose passages, to skip passages. We follow what's given, and, um, and we don't always do that, but right now we are working through that. And so I just wanted to kind of catch up to speed on Acts. Um, I have been working with the idea that um, Acts is a book about resurrection, what resurrection life looks like, and, and I'm kind of following that again today. Right, we see, we've seen so far what the resurrected Christ has meant in individuals like Paul and then Peter. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life has gone, a new life has begun. And we see that, right? We see that in the actions of Paul who's going to murder people who then turns to fellowship with them and hanging out with them and... Uh, having life with them. So Acts then, for me, became a picture, has become a picture of what resurrected life looks like, right? We see people also in, in Acts who sell their goods and they give it to people who are struggling. So they sell their houses, they sell land, and they give it to people who don't have. And we see people reaching outside themselves or outside their normal circles to those that they don't like, that they don't want to be near, so that they can love people who are different than them. For me, it's important that we look at this, that our faith in Christ or in Jesus, our, our encounter with the risen one, comes with a change in attitude and actions. It must, right? Just like that storm the other day had effects, the risen Christ should have effect in our life. James, 12, James 2, 14 to 20, probably my most favorite passage, but here it is. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and say, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now some may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish! Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Hmm. Unfortunately, Western people, like myself, like most of us here, we value thinking and rationale above other things. And so many people's faith has become this idea of intellectually knowing something. And not that there's anything wrong with that. Like, that's a gift. It's just a small part of it. And we've made it big. If faith, faith is based on thinking right, most of us are in huge trouble. Think about your thoughts for the last day. 
If faith is left for the intellectual few who can grasp these massive theological ideas, then Jesus' teaching for children and those who the world looks down on is useless. This idea of intellectual faith has actually created this personal savior idea. And I think that's damaging to us. Not that Jesus doesn't come to us personally, for sure, that's, that's true. But faith has never been and never will be about an individual. I loved that Chris moved the words this morning from me to our. Jesus meets us individually, but it's never for us. The other, ver- the other song, Overflow, that's exactly what I'm talking about. We, we believe in this, this crazy idea of a triune God, right? Ever have anybody ask you to explain the Trinity? Good luck. It's amazing, but it's beyond our understanding. But the idea of the triune God is based in the idea of relationship. Father and son. What, what are those terms? The relationship terms. Because most of us don't think that God the Father is a man, do we? It's not, it's not about gender. Um, it's about looking at a relationship. There's a relationship of father to son and, and then the spirit. And God, as, as sort of the core idea of, of our faith, isn't individual. Even in itself, he's not individual. They're not individual. Right? They're not like how we think of individual, like me, mine, or my. And they, they don't keep it to themselves. They don't keep themselves to themselves. But in the beginning, they pour out. So the core, the core of our faith is based in this idea of community. Right? A triune God who is community pouring out. So the story of God's people always moves from individual outward. Always. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing for all nations. Israel was chosen to be a sign for the rest of the world. Jesus died for the sins of all people for all time. So when we walk through the book of Acts, as we're looking at it, we can kind of see this moving out, this expansion, this love being passed out, this overflowing. Notice that we don't hear any stories about the disciples sitting in their armchairs pontificating on ideas. And again, I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with ideas uh, or people that write down their ideas. I think that's great. I read them all the time. I just come to the conclusion that if a person isn't acting on their theology, if it's not livable, it isn't actually very useful. And I'm really not interested in hearing it. Thanks, guys. So the beginning, the beginning of Acts is somewhat a reshaping of history a little bit, right? It's kind of cool how this happens. Jesus, Jesus is asked about something in the first chapter that I love. So he's asked uh, Acts chapter 1, 6 to 8. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, the time has come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom. He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I love this, this question, actually, that they ask, right? Because you can imagine they're looking for this Messiah who's going to change everything, overthrow Rome. 
and then all of a sudden he's back from the dead, <laughs> you'd be like, so when's, when's the next thing? When's the, when's the big thing going to hit? But immediately after this, Jesus is taken up into the ascension, taken away. I think it's funny that in that passage, Jesus never answers the question, just like he often does. He doesn't answer. But the disciples must have believed because immediately they went about a task. Immediately after Jesus is taken up, they go about finding a replacement for Judas. Now, that may not seem like a very important thing, right? It's just replacing a team member. We've had to do that this week because one, one of our employees resigned. So you have to replace them. They have tasks to do and those things. So it, it might just seem like that, but the reality is this 12 is an important number. 12 is the 12 tribes of Israel. It's symbolic. And so we have a resetting up of sort of like the tribes of Jerusalem or of Israel, and then the Holy Spirit comes along, right, in the next chapter. And more retelling, more shaping happens. People who are speaking completely different languages are gathered together for a, a, a holy time in Jerusalem. They're all speaking different languages, and yet the disciples come out speaking, and they all understand. That's in Acts 2.7. So they were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the rest of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own language about the wonderful things that God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. I can't hear, help but hear the undoing of Babel. Right? If you don't know Babel, right? Babel is when people were trying to set up a monument to themselves. And God confuses their speech. Here in Acts, we see God now unifying speech, bringing about unity, giving people opportunity to be united with him as the focus instead of a building. James Allison writes in his book, Knowing Jesus, the man who died and rose again did so as part of a process of making available to the whole of humanity the possible of forming a new human society, which maintains its unity in completely different ways from all human societies. That is not by excluding, but by serving and worshiping the victim. I love that. If you ever get a chance, that book by James Allison is quite powerful. So we see in Acts, the disciples set up these, the 12, the 12 tribes, the, the symbolism. And then they go and share the kingdom of God with people of all different nationalities, different classes, different religions. And they do it by loving people that the world doesn't love. At the same time, worshiping the God the world didn't love. So we come to our passage today, Acts 16, 16 to 40. One day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. 
This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Her master's hopes of, now, of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities in the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of the Jews, they shouted in the, to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly, quickly formed against Paul and Cyrus, and the city officials ordered them to be stripped and beaten with a wooden rod. They were severely beaten, and they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape, so the jailer put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the, prisoner, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed that the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourselves, we are all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with them and all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. The next morning, the city officials sent police to tell the jailer, let those men go. So the jailer told Paul, the city officials have said, you and Silas are free to leave. Go in peace. But Paul replied, they have publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison, and we are Roman citizens. So now they want us to leave secretly? Certainly not. Let them come, to, let them come themselves to release us. When the police reported this, the city officials were alarmed to hear that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to the jail and apologized to them. They brought them out and begged them to leave the city. When Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. There they met with the believers and encouraged them once more, and they left town. One thing that I love about our scriptures is they don't take out the pathetic heroes of our faith, their failures. It reminds me that I can belong to this thing too, right? Paul encounters a slave girl who is demon-possessed, and what is his response? Annoyance. He encounters human slavery, and he's annoyed because she's shouting about Jesus. He just gets finally frustrated enough that he casts the demon out. And I believe that to be a weakness in Paul. But again, I'm thankful for it. Paul will say in his first book of Galatians, Galatians 22, 5, 22 to 23, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Paul did not act out of any of those fruits. He acts out of anger, out of annoyance. That's like the opposite of the fruits of the Spirit. I think Paul missed out on this person in front of him who's hurting, who's enslaved, but in, in some ways is only thinking about his task that he needs to get done. That's like me. I, I do that. I get so busy with things that I forget there's people there hurting people. We miss out on them. But luckily, God loves 
to use imperfect people like Paul, like you and like me, probably more like you than me. He just needs imperfect people who are willing. Even when they have no idea what they are doing. And I tried to wear my shirt this morning that one of our staff gave me. It says, I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah, I couldn't find it. I have no idea. Um, God uses Paul's weakness not only for the freedom of the girl, but this entire passage hinges on the fact that he acts out of annoyance. That's a God that doesn't waste anything. That's incredible. Later on, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. I wonder if this encounter with a girl that was in slavery helped to shape that thought from Corinthians. I, wondered, I wonder if he boasted later. I acted out of frustration, and look what God did. He broke open jail doors, knocked off chains. As a child, I loved that story. I was lucky enough, my parents read me Bible stories, and I loved that they were singing in the, in this, in the prison. Um, you know, it, it kind of gives us this really cool imagery that, that Paul and Silas realized that even if their bodies were in prison, their soul and sp- or their spirit could be free. So in any situation, no matter what it seems like, we can be free. But what I didn't realize as a child was that the freedom that Paul and Silas experienced wasn't just for them. It was free-flowing. It was overflowing. They passed it on. Isn't it a powerful image that when Paul and Silas' chains fall off and the doors open, they don't leave? I, I think most of us would have been like, see you later. But they knew those things, the doors, the chains, could never capture their spirit. But more than that, they knew that their freedom could never be at the expense of someone else, the jailer. Had they left, the jailer would have been killed. Our freedom is bound together. It really is. It's bound together in the one who was slain before the foundation of the world and at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue confess. If our freedom comes at the expense of another, it is not freedom. It can't be. Paul and Silas could have claimed freedom for themselves. The jailer would have died and they could have walked away without even knowing. And they could have felt justified. Saying God freed us. He caused our chains to fall off and open the door. We just walked through it. But they must have known that God's freedom wasn't just for them. But even for those that beat them and imprison them. Nelson Mandela once quoted, for to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. What are we doing as a community that, that not only casts off the things, our chains, our doors, the things that imprison us, but the things that hold others in prison? What are we doing as community? What are we doing together? This is a small thing. I, I say it's small because I'm, I'm not sure how effective it is, but will you vote in the next election 
for things that benefit you? Or will you vote according to what will alleviate suffering for others? It's just an interesting thought, isn't it? Because often I turn to tax cuts, better things for me, but, but the reality is I don't think God is shaping us to be that. One of the things that this pandemic has done well is to help us see and shape how we think about personal rights. I am for human rights. I think they're good. I just don't think us claiming rights is an excuse to treat others poorly or to keep them imprisoned. In fact, as a follower of Jesus, I recognize that the one that I follow gave up all his rights and his privileges for the sake of others. Paul and Silas, they they have the right here. They are Roman citizens. They have a right to make a problem for their unjust treatment. I wonder if Paul maybe learned his lesson on the road to Damascus, right? He had the right, he had the papers, he had the legal legal authority behind him to to arrest and kill people. But on the way, he met the risen one. On the road to Damascus, Paul thinks he sees clearly, but he loses his sight. When his sight is restored, he begins to see things differently. And Paul here could have caused issues for the magistrate, easily. He could have used his privilege to make a statement about him. But instead, I believe he does what we're called to, and he identifies himself with the victim with Jesus and all those who were not Roman of that time. Galatians 3, 26 to 29 says, for you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus and now you belong to Christ. You are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. You have to see that when Paul says this, he is placing those who are other against each other in some ways, right? Those who have privilege against those who have none. He says, uh, he talks about the Jews against the Gentiles. Well, the Jews were God's chosen people. The Gentiles were unclean. He talks about slaves and free. Well, slaves had no rights, and the free did talked about men and women, and men were in charge. Women were property. I'm not suggesting that we don't use our rights. The opposite. We should use any tool at our disposal to relieve the injustice that is happening to those who have less or who are struggling, not for ourselves. I love how Paul and Silas use their rights as Roman citizens. It's amazing. They get the magistrates to come to them. I'm sure they would have come if they went out in the street and started yelling about it. But they do it quietly. They could have caused massive issues for the leaders. But that sounds to me more like revenge. Instead, they invite them to chat, to get to know them, to meet them face to face. To use their their rights as revenge or punishment could never be a witness of Jesus but they reminded them of rights. 
they reminded how they were broken and that they walked away without retaliation. That must have caused the magistrates to question. They were terrified because they knew what everybody else would do with their rights. I would think that they would have reflected later on how Paul and Silas had treated them and how they themselves had been treated by Paul and Silas. I believe God is calling us to this. I, th- I believe that kind of response is what God is calling this community to. Let me pray for you. Pray for us. Father God, we are thankful for your example of laying down privilege. There is no one that had more. And yet you give it up so that you gave it up so that you could encounter us broken people. Give us that same attitude. Help us to have that same mind. God, I do pray for those that are struggling this morning that they would have a sense of your spirit and your presence. Remind them that you left heaven to come and suffer, to walk beside them in that. And remind those that are celebrating that things are going well, that you're the resurrected one that we follow. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Go in the grace, the peace, the love, the joy of God. Amen.